Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode was recorded live in front of a virtual audience in partnership with CGIAR, the world's largest agricultural innovation network. It is part of a series of episodes examining the relationship between climate and security. Today's episode takes a deep dive into how the transition to low-carbon energy economies impacts security. The episode kicks off with introductory remarks by Jesus Quintana Garcia, Director General SIAT, Managing Director of the Americas, Alliance Bioversity International, and SIAT CGIAR. I then moderate a panel discussion featuring a diverse group of experts on this issue whom I introduce at the top of the moderated session. This is the final episode of the Climate Security series. To view other episodes, please visit climatesecurity.cgiar.org. Now here is Jesus Quintana Garcia. More than anything, hello to the audience uh, joining us today for our final climate security expert panel discussion of 2021, where we'll investigate the links between energy transitions, peace, security, and stability. But let me first start by reminding you of something that we are not by now. If humanity wants to meet the objective of the Paris Agreement and fight effectively climate change, we will need to fundamentally change the way in which we produce, distribute, and consume energy. Therefore, one of the top priorities will be to reduce emissions rapidly and move forward towards climate neutrality. As we saw a few weeks ago in Glasgow, countries are being asked to come forward with ambitious emission reduction targets. With around 70% of the world's economy now committed to reaching net zero emissions. But pivotal to a path towards a low carbon future will be the design of a global clean energy transition plan to adapt to and adopt greener, cleaner sources. This will entail the development and funding of energy projects, including a wider use of renewables and clean energy technologies. The involvement of many partners, including governments and the private sector, will be essential. Innovation, research, and capital are all needed in significant amounts to promote and support this energy transition. But the path to a decarbonized future and an accelerating clean energy transition may also have negative impact on people and environment, affecting their livelihood, coexistence, and quality of life. So achieving a just transition will take time and effort, but more importantly, it will require consideration to key factors such as financing, technical assistance, and alternatives being offered, as well as other such as landlord rights, ownership of resources, and equal access to energy sources. Let me now rapidly take you to one example, very common in Latin America where I'm based, but also frequently in Africa and Asia. This is conflict and instability due to mining activities. Mining operations are very often related to protests, violence, and hostilities as local communities and indigenous people 
living around the mining project suffer the negative externalities such as displacement, environmental degradation, pollution, crime, prostitution, without benefiting from exploitation. The new technologies needed to ensure a transition toward a low carbon future, which will include wind turbines, solar panels, improved energy storage, such as batteries, will all require very important mineral and metal input that come mainly from the mining sector. How these minerals are sourced will determine whether the energy transition support peaceful, sustainable development in the countries where these strategic reserves are found, or instead reinforces weak governance and exacerbates local tensions and grievances. Therefore, for the energy transition to be successful and sustainable, it will be critical to ensure that governments, citizens, workers, local communities, vulnerable peoples, including their surroundings, resources, and cultural sites, are not left behind or negatively affected. For that, consultations, prior consent, transparency, and free information flow will all be required and essential. We can see then clearly the challenges of energy transitions. It can be a very effective tool for fighting climate change, but to be sustainable and peaceful, it must contribute to stability and security instead of exacerbating already fragile contexts. Here, some questions arise. How can we make sure that local stakeholders benefit from this transition? How can we make sure that formerly fossil fuel dependent societies find other ways of economic activities? How can we make sure that technologies and practices to be implemented are actually making the situation better and not worse? So here today with me to debate this and other related questions is a luxury panel of very knowledgeable experts. But before moving to the panel, we will first watch a short video introduction to the Climate Security Webinar Series. And after that, our great moderator, Mark Orber, will facilitate the discussion with the distinguished panelists. I will see you again when the panel finishes for a short summary and closing remark. Enjoy. Welcome all. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I am the editor of UN Dispatch and host of the Global Dispatches podcast. And today's conversation is being recorded as a live taping of the podcast. Uh, Jesus Quintana Garcia did a great job of framing this conversation, and I now have the honor of moderating an excellent panel today, whom I will now introduce. We have Professor Dr. Karen Smith-Stegan, is professor at Jacobs University in Bremen and chair of the International Relations, Politics, and History Department. Welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Uh, Claudia Ringler is Deputy Director of Environment and Production Technology at the International Food Policy Research Institute. Welcome. Good morning. Good evening to everyone. And Besma Murad is Operations and Planning Lead at Energy Peace Partners. Hello. Hi, good morning or good evening. 
Uh, we're, we're all over the world here. Uh, so I will have some questions for our panelists, after which I will open up to questions from the audience. To ask a question of a member of the panel, please simply leave your question in the comment field wherever you are watching this live stream, and we'll get to them uh, towards the end of my set of questions. Uh, so with that, I'd like to kick things off with a question to you all. And uh, Karen Smith-Stegan, we'll start with you. Uh, more and more countries are making the transition to low carbon energy. How do you think this will impact security and stability? What are the potential risks to security? And what might be some potential opportunities that this energy transition presents to build peace and stability? Well, thanks for that question. It's a very interesting one. So um, the way that renewable energy uh, is distributed and uh, produced is very different than hydrocarbons, well, most of it, uh, with the exception of, um, like, well, anyways, uh, when, you, when you have a grid, um, a grid works better the more actors that are connected to the grid. Uh, and with a renewable energy grid, this is even more important because we have the issues of volatility. So uh, when the sun isn't shining, then there's nothing coming in from the, uh, the photovoltaic elements of the grid. And also, um, uh, the more um, if the larger a grid is, the better it is, is, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and what they have found is that uh, for renewable energy, grids probably will be regional, crossing many countries. I mean, and the more countries, uh, actually, the better. Uh, this actually makes a grid, an electricity grid, much safer. Uh, much more secure. And what the thinking is going is that what we're going to see is uh, the emergence of regional blocks that are very strong, that are very interconnected. They are even called grid communities. This is what uh, people who are who are thinking about these things call them. Um, and so we might see a more a greater focus on on regions. And then we might see geopolitically that countries that have really been locked into hydrocarbons and and are in the hydrocarbon world and have resisted a transition or have had a very slow transition, they might actually be at a disadvantage in the future when eventually there's a whole-scale shift made from hydrocarbons to uh, renewable energies. Uh, some people call this stranded assets. Uh, so we will see a, a shifting both in who are the countries that are kind of winners and who are the countries that are losers in a renewable energy era. And we will also see the emergence of of, of regions as having more importance than they had before. Uh, thank you. Uh, and Claudia, same question to you. What are some risks that you see from this energy transition and what might be some potential opportunities that this transition presents for peace building? Yeah. So let me maybe first start with opportunities. So I think the key opportunities lie in increased equity and increased energy security. To some extent, uh, we have heard about the energy security piece already. Today, around 600 million people in sub-Saharan Africa and 170 million people in South Asia have no access to electricity, while existing access in many places is unreliable, mostly in rural areas. For example, I'm in Pakistan and many rural areas do not have uh, access to the, elect to the electricity, even so they have the lines, but 18 hours, there is just no power on the electric lines. And so, you know, officially they have access, but in reality, they don't have access. So when we do have this leapfrogging of the traditional grid systems with decentralized rural renewable energy systems, 
such a mix, like a mix of solar, wind and generators and battery systems that can really reduce these rural urban inequities. So reducing inequities between rural and urban areas, I think is an important source for security, for stability. I think the second reason why renewable energy systems are important is because they're basically generally a more diversified energy mix. Diversification always supports security because different energy sources tend to be associated with different economic, environmental and political costs or challenges. And so it's basically good to have more than one egg in your energy basket in case one of these sources becomes unavailable or too costly or there's some other issue happens. Just as an example, many countries have traditionally relied on hydropower, which is renewable. But with climate change and growing water scarcity, it has become a much more risky proposition to only rely on hydroelectricity. So the big potential with the other renewable is to actually complement hydroelectricity, which also has a lot of storage, like a battery, to complement that with wind or solar. And that can make a real difference in terms of energy security. So obviously the risk is actually to just rely on a single renewable um, energy source, such as hydropower, I guess, similar to some extent, if you only rely on fossil fuels. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And, and Besma, over to you, Besma Murad. Can you talk us through what you see as some risks and also opportunities uh, around this transition in terms of security and peace building? Sure thing. Thanks, Mark, for the question and the opportunity to be part of this discussion. I'd like to start by giving a brief overview of Energy Peace Partners, where, where I work. Uh, we began in 2017 with the mission to mobilize climate and finance solutions as tools for peace building with a focus on renewable energy. Our team is made up of individuals with backgrounds in peace building, renewable energy, and climate security, and we work in three areas. The first is that we've developed a new financing mechanism called the Peace Renewable Energy Credit, which offers a way to support renewable energy in conflict-affected settings. The second is a research initiative called Powering Peace in partnership with the Stimson Center, which works with the UN to accelerate the transition to renewable energy in its field operations. And the third is that we're launching a new research project to develop a framework and methodology for measuring and tracking the social and peace impacts of renewable energies. With regards to your question, one large risk with the global energy transition is that it doesn't happen equally. And this is something that we're already seeing with fragile states. More than 300 billion is invested annually in renewable energy. And in 2019, only 6% of that went to countries in the Middle East and Africa, and a fraction of which went to fragile countries. These are the countries that Energy Peace Partners focuses on and where we see a tremendous opportunity for renewable energy to support peace. In terms of opportunities, I'll mention three, some of which have already been mentioned. Uh, the first is developing sustainable green solutions in countries where energy access is limited. Utilizing renewables can leapfrog the need for national grids and avoid building energy infrastructure that's dependent on fossil fuels. Secondly, renewables can easily allow for decentralized energy systems, enabling access to rural and remote settings, as well as greater resiliency to disruptions. Lastly, many conflict-affected countries host large UN and international humanitarian missions. In many of these settings, the UN is the largest consumer and producer of energy in the areas that they're deployed. These UN field missions have a mandate to support peace and stability and leveraging their footprints in these settings to transition to renewable 
can both green their own footprint, reduce security risks to peacekeepers, and create entry points for working with host governments and local communities to identify opportunities to bring clean energy access to these communities. Uh, thank you. Uh, and uh, Karen, I'm going to go back to you, Karen Smith-Stegan. You sort of hinted that, at this in your uh, initial answer, uh, but I'd love you to flesh out further what you see as the main shifts and changes that might happen on the international level when the global energy systems transition to low carbon energies. Are global transitions expected to shift you know, the geopolitical power balance? And if so, what might we expect? Yes, thank you for that for that uh, interesting question. Um, so, as I mentioned, um, regions might gain in, in importance, um, and the regions. Uh, well, let me talk about the EU first, since uh, I'm coming from the EU today. I know we're coming from all over the world, but for example, within the EU, we have what we're seeing is a multi-speed energy transition, meaning. One part of the EU, and it happens to be a geographically group, a grouping, is moving faster. And another one, which is kind of uh, on the east side of, uh, of the old member state, new member state divide, are moving much more slowly. And they're much more locked into uh, hydrocarbons and into their coal manufacturing and um, production and, uh, and distribution. Um, and what we're seeing is that uh, they're very resistant to to the the coaxing, one could say, to, to speed up their, their transition. Um, and uh, so there, it could even be uh, political problems within the EU if these countries aren't brought along faster. And I, you know, since I study energy transitions, I think there's been way too much focus on the, the factors that push or accelerate a transition. And we also have to look at the factors that hinder uh, the obstacles to to a transition, and we have to start taking those much more seriously. So, in the EU, for example, just telling countries, all the countries, these are your targets, go, 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 is insufficient. We have to look at, well, why are they so locked into their their coal? And the answers are, are really obvious, but something has to be done to address that on a more international or, or global level. I mean, China is is zooming ahead with. Um, all it can, even though it is still building along its um, Silk Road or its uh, um, Belt and Road Initiative, or some people call it the Silk Road, uh, it's building coal plants. Now, so it's cutting down coal plants in inside China and is and is really gearing China up and building up renewable energies. But outside of China, it's like using its coal technology for other reasons. But um, a friend of mine is a top physicist for. Um, oh my gosh, I'm gonna I'm gonna forget the name. Um, something I work on all the time. Anyways, so it said, uh, when it comes to renewable energies, uh, China is ahead in, in every way. And I think this isn't just because they want to be green. I think there is a geopolitical uh, maneuvering to this. Uh, thank you. Uh, and Claudia, staying in this context of global energy transitions, what issues do you foresee on the national and subnational level, particularly when it comes to the links between food, land, water, and energy? And how might energy transitions and their policies impact these links? Yeah, that's, I think, a very important and excellent question. I think basically energy security improves food and water security, as both are highly energy intensive. Just as an example, rural energy access can be used for cold storage of nutrient-dense, highly perishable foods, such as eggs, milk, 
fruits and vegetables. And therefore, it's really essential for improved nutrition, particularly in rural areas. Energy access can also support the development of drinking water sources closer to homesteads. Globally, around 900 million people do not have access to a basic drinking water source that is a source within a 30-minute round trip from the homestead. Safe supply, in many cases, can be developed with deeper wells and solar-powered pumps. Renewable energy security, of course, also reduces climate change, which is a key driver of food insecurity, migration, and has been linked to civil unrest. Key risks that renewables are, exist if renewables are pushed without considering implications for food security, water resources, or the environment. Solar irrigation, for example, is slowly replacing diesel pumps and sometimes electric pumps, but this removes variable production costs thus potentially accelerating groundwater depletion, reducing food security, and then this can again be a driver for migration. So it's all interlinked and interrelated, and we have to be very careful how we plan those renewables. Uh, thank you. And Besma Murad, talking specifically about conflict-prone regions and communities, how can the transition to renewable energy contribute to peace and security? What are the main advantages of renewable energies in these contexts to these communities? Great. Thanks, Mark, for the question. In terms of contributing to peace and security, I'll give two examples that illustrate how we think about the connection between renewable energy and peace. The first is through a conflict or political analysis. In many conflict-affected regions, energy plays a subtle but important role in the conflict dynamics. And what electricity does exist is often in the form of diesel generators. That's the case in South Sudan, where all diesel is imported through very long supply chains, parts of which are controlled by conflict actors. Renewable energy in South Sudan not only can help bring energy access to one of the least electrified countries in the world, but it can help reduce the negative externalities of having diesel intertwined in the war economy in a country whose entire economy is overwhelmingly reliant or dependent on oil revenue. Secondly, renewable energy can lead to social and economic benefits, particularly where it's providing new or first-time electrification by creating jobs, supporting businesses, improving health outcomes, by electrifying hospitals and clinics, and improving nighttime safety and security. In fact, one figure that we've heard from Virunga Energy, who operates in Virunga National Park in the Democratic Republic of Congo, is that for every one megawatt in the community, between 800 to 1,000 jobs are created, and 11% of those jobs are ex-combatants from the armed groups. In Goma DRC, many grid-connected streetlights built by Congolese developer Nuru have allowed businesses to operate for additional hours more securely. In a survey conducted by Nuru, over 80% of the SMEs, uh, small medium enterprises, indicated that their ability uh, to remain open for more nighttime hours than in the past. And more than 85% of households reported that Nuru's public streetlights improved neighborhood security. That said, there is still limited data on how renewable energy can contribute to peace. I mentioned this earlier, but we're actually working on a new research initiative to develop a robust framework to measure and track the peace and social impacts of renewable energy. Um, and that framework will be grounded in the positive peace framework. It's still very early days, but think we, we think this will be a valuable tool for project developers, philanthropy, investors, and peace building actors 
to both understand and articulate in what ways renewable energy can be used as a tool for greater peace and stability. Uh, thank you. I want to turn back to uh, Claudia Ringler. Uh, climate change is expected to put a lot of pressure on water and food systems in the years to come. Uh, some energy developments, such as the transition to biofuels, might worsen existing security tensions. How can we make sure that energy transitions don't worsen tensions and conflicts and actually work to relieve these tensions? Yeah, I think this is an excellent point. I mean, it's so surprising, you know, that in today's interconnected world, energy security and climate mitigation solutions proposed by gov governments, but also in those IPCC reports, they're continually, they're still being conceived without considering rural realities or these cross-sectoral impacts. And biofuels is exactly one of those strategies. The U.S. Energy Policy Act of 2005 and the Energy Independence and Security Act of 2007, they started up this very large program to blend biofuels, largely with maize as a feedstock with gasoline. Other programs started in Europe to mix biodiesel from palm oil in Indonesia to reduce fossil fuel use in the transportation sector as well. However, the environmental and food security impacts of these programs have been substantial and they have not been considered from the beginning. Today, three of the four main biofuel crops in use are known for their large fertilizer use, large water use, and, and destruction of tropical ecosystems. Again, those are maize, sugarcane, and palm oil. Maize and sugarcane have also been associated with high water pollution, the hypoxia, the continued growth in the hypoxia in the Gulf of Mexico and eutrophication of drinking water sources in Brazil. It's really surprising. So yes, so there are real problems uh, between some of those strategies and environmental outcomes and food security outcomes. At the same time, the IPCC continues to propose bioenergy as a key source for climate mitigation because they do not consider the impacts on food and water security. The 1.5 degree report that I think everyone knows, notes, for example, Decisions about bioenergy deployment and integrated assessment models are based on economic considerations to stay within a carbon budget that is consistent with a long-term climate goal. Those models assume that bioenergy is supplied mostly from second-generation biomass feedstocks, such as dedicated cellulosic crops, etc., and uh, residues. You know, reality is obviously quite different. So there are two different worlds out there. You know, the world of actual biofuel use that can be quite destructive and the, the world of potential biofuel use that is not uh, becoming reality because the costs are too high. So, yeah, we really need to do better here to Thank achieve you. energy security and food security. Thank you. And uh, turning now to Karen Smith-Stegan, how can researchers and policymakers increase cooperation and coordination during this energy transition? What are the areas that need the cooperation that need cooperation the most? And how might we foster more cooperation on these matters? <laughs> Those are three interrelated, very intriguing questions. Uh, well, if we just look at cooperation theory, we know that the costs and benefits associated with um, a transition have to be, the, 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 the matrix has to be more powerful than the costs and benefits associated with what you would call defecting if you're talking about cooperation theory. But basically what we're talking about is that the benefits of transitioning have to be higher or more impactful than the benefits of staying kind of 
wedded to your hydrocarbon. And so when we talked about energy security earlier, so uh, Poland, for example, has lots of coal. They're very concerned about energy security. For them, the costs associated with doing a full-scale transition to renewable energies are, are uh, well, staggering. It's staggering costs, right? So, so, so long as this kind of payoff structure, as it's called in cooperation theory, is such that the costs of, of transitioning are much, much higher than the costs of staying where they are uh, and, and moving slowly, uh, you're not going to get cooperation. And that needs to be taken seriously. Uh, for example, the hundreds of thousands of people who work in the coal industry. It's one thing to say, shut it down, but somebody has to take seriously what that will entail in terms of a human cost. Um, so the second part of your question, just let me look at my notes because I'm not going to say I forgot it, but I just want to um, look well, again. What are there specific areas uh, uh, that need coal. cooperation the most? Coal. Coal. Yeah, we saw that in Glasgow. And coal, the, and, and this is what a lot of people don't realize. On the one hand, the UN, the EU, all these different players are saying push renewable energies. And on the other hand, governments are still giving hundreds of billions in, in subsidies to the hydrocarbon industries around the world, you know, to drilling of wells for oil, for natural gas, for the, for the coal um, industry. And so there is this real push-pull that's going on. So we need to look at that more closely. They, you can't be telling everyone, turn off your, your coal plants and uh, hop on board to the renewable energy train while, you know, behind the scenes you're giving money still to that. What if you gave that money? I mean, this is a really crazy idea, but what if we gave, you know, all the coal workers in in, uh, in Poland, for example, 500,000 euros, give them a half half million euros. Uh, if, if you look at the subsidies that are, are going to coal, well, that might be one way that they might say, okay, we, we accept this transition. I mean, somebody might think, you know, that might sound like a crazy idea, but actually that might be the kind of ideas that are needed to move this forward. Thank you. Uh, let me turn now to Besma Murad. Uh, what kind of conditions, dynamics, and policies should be in place to allow renewable energies to contribute to peace and stability in like a meaningful and, and positive way? Sure. Thanks, Mark. Um, when we began this work, we quickly learned that access to financing for renewable energy development was a big gap for conflict-affected countries. There are a growing number of local renewable energy project developers that see the opportunity and benefit that sustainable energy access can bring to their communities. However, there are large barriers in building out these projects. This was one reason why EPP created the Peace Renewable Energy Credit, or PREC, which offers a new way to monetize renewable energy in fragile states and thereby support new projects. We successfully piloted the PREC last year with Microsoft and Google buying the first ever PRECs from solar projects in the DRC, which channeled about $80,000 to these new projects. So greater access to financial resources uh, for high impact projects, particularly for those developers that are from and operating in conflict affected settings. Secondly, is the importance of local engagement to understand needs, ensure equitable access, and to build trust and confidence in the process and the projects. In the case of the project in Goma, the developer Nuru had held a series of community consultations to identify priorities. 
Streetlights were identified uh, in a densely populated area where high levels of crime had created an atmosphere of insecurity. And the PREC revenue in this example went towards funding these streetlights. Lastly, as mentioned earlier, UN field operations offer a unique entry point. As a large, complex, and bureaucratic institution, UN missions have begun to and should continue to develop partnerships with the private sector, host governments, research organizations, and philanthropic funders to identify new models to help UN missions accelerate renewable energy development and innovation. We're already beginning to see some interesting models develop, such as the use of power purchase agreements in which the UN partners with private sector renewable energy develop developers and signs energy lease agreements. More broadly, examples of what has worked, what has not worked, should be shared, learned from, and where relevant, replicated. Uh, thank you. So I have uh, one final round of questions for the panelists. Uh, before I do, I want to remind the audience that you uh, will have the opportunity to ask your question of the panelists. Please simply leave your question as a comment wherever you are watching the live stream. Uh, so to each of our panelists, I have uh, the same question. I'd love your take on this question. If the transition to low carbon energy is to be a success, it must be mindful of its potential implications to peace and security and not repeat mistakes of the fossil fuel-based energy system. So with this in mind, what are your two key priorities on how to seize the potential of energy transitions so that it contributes positively to peace and stability? Uh, two key priorities. Karen, uh, first to you. Uh, Karen, you'll need to unmute. <laughs> Ensure equality and halt exploitation. Very simple. You That's can... how we will not reproduce what has happened in the past, right? And we've already heard on this panel, people discuss equalities. Um, and renewable energies are a great way to ensure that everybody has what's called energy justice or has access to energy. We can do that with renewable energies. And there was a lot of exploitation that's gone on with the hydrocarbon industry. So I would say ensure equality and halt exploitation. Okay, and uh, Claudia, to you, two, two key priorities. Okay, I, I love uh, Karen's priorities and I would just push a bit further. I think we need a dialogue. We need dialogue and engagement between energy specialists working on the, the energy transition, but also on these uh, climate mitigation strategies and agriculture scientists and rural people, people who are engaged in these livelihoods that can benefit most, but are also at risk of losing most from this energy transition if it's done badly. And second, my suggestion is to really do a lot more, do yet a lot more to push and get cheaper and pro poor renewables to really reduce an inequity and democ democratize energy access in rural areas. And while doing so, we need to make sure that we do not degrade the environment and our water resources. Thanks. Uh, thank you. And, and uh, Besma, to you for your two key priorities going forward. Sure. Um, well, first off, there's no guarantee that the renewable energy revolution will automatically extend to fragile states. In fact, roughly of the 800 million people in the world without access to electricity, between 80 to 90% of them live in fragile states. So for this to happen, it's going to require a concerted effort in policy and implementation and from government, private sector, donors, investors to prioritize, prioritize these countries 
and these regions. Fragile states themselves, led by the G7 plus group of fragile states, are leading a global call to action to scale up energy investments within their borders, recognizing that fragility and energy, po energy poverty are closely interlinked. Secondly, and related, it's still early days and there's not yet a robust set of evidence or examples of renewable energy development in conflict settings. So, and how these can best contribute to peace. So collectively, we should make sure to document, share, celebrate the successes from renewable energy development as these can serve as the model to be replicated and scaled. Uh, thank you. Uh, again, a reminder to uh, the audience to submit your questions. Uh, I have one coming in that actually touches on uh, this question of equity and equality that each of you have, have mentioned and, and brought up. So here's the question. Countries rich in resources historically have tended to have poor distribution of wealth from these industries and a lot of social inequality. How can we make sure that green energy better promotes social equality and that its benefits are better distributed rather than only benefiting the very rich? Uh, why doesn't Yo, Karen, do you want to take a minute to uh, yep. staff this question? Sure. Yeah, this is something I actually teach, so I'm <laughs> happy yeah. to, to take this you one. You can condense uh, your 101 course into a one-minute <laughs> answer here. That's yeah. right. That's right. So, uh, well, if you think about how a democracy works and how an authoritarian system works, an authoritarian system is where you have a consolidation of power or a centralization of, of power, and a democracy works because you have a diffusion of power and the problem with um, oil resources, for example, is that they're very easy for for a, a, a small group to capture, right? And then once they've captured that, it's very unlikely they're going to say, "And now we're going to share it with 100 million people that we don't know within our country," right? So you're going to end up with a consolidation of power. You're going to end up with an authoritarian system. Now the countries like Norway. Um, and I think there might be one other country that actually are democracies that were able to handle their wealth well. That's because they were already democracies. They already were had the institutions in place. Um, but who knows, maybe if their oil had been discovered before they were democracy, there would be a similar outcome there. So it's not necessarily that the 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 energy itself, but but how who can capture it. Now with renewable energies, we're much less likely to have that because they are so dispersed um, that that someone can like or some group can capture most of the wealth of renewable energy. So we're much less likely to see um, authoritarian systems being built off the backs of, of renewable energy as a, as a resource. It, it kind of lends itself well to de to democracy. Um, so that's the answer we discuss in my classrooms. I'd say anyone else wanted to jump in on this question. Yeah, uh, go for it, uh, Claudia. I mean, just an aspect, and Karen, you can correct me. So, so while the technology itself is more distributed and maybe more democratic, the the technology production, right? I mean, it, it, so we do see some monopolies in terms of who you know produces the cheapest solar panels out there. So you know, there's not 160 countries producing solar panels right now. And then I think some of the inputs going into some of the renewable technologies, right? Some of these minerals, I thought they're also concentrated in very few countries. So there could be new monopolies and there could be new um, inequities in accessing some of those renewable uh, energy technologies. I mean, I don't know if you want to say something more about that. But so basically it could be a different type of uh, monopoly, different type of um, inequity. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I think what you're talking about is uh, at a geopolitical or a global geopolitical level, right? So like China has right now uh, for rare earth mining, but also for, for uh, rare earth uh, refining. This is what a lot of people don't know. Rare earths are all around the world. So heavy rare earths you can even find in the United States. But when you want to refine them, you have to send them to China and then they send them back refined. Uh, the refining capacity is missing. But I was talking about within a specific country, whether you're going to have an authoritarian system or a dem- or more of a democratic system, uh, that has to do with the concentration of wealth. I think you're talking about like at a, at a more broader global level. And there you're right. I mean, um, you know, a country that has all the rare earths and all the rare earth refining capacity is probably going to have some leverage over over other countries. And then we might see a reproduction of um, some of the, you know, just what we saw with oil, with the oil industry. Uh, but what we do know is that the once or twice that China has tried to use its kind of rare earths as a political tool, it had a, the, the, the pushback was very tough. Um, and China stopped doing that. So it tried that once against Japan and instantly, I mean, not instantly, but EU, uh, the US and Japan got together and said, okay, how do we stop this? Not that they've made great strides, but they took such action that uh, China got the message. Um, if they do that, then the others will ramp up their the refining capacity. In fact, there is in the mining industry a push to ramp up mining, not just mining, but capacity, refining capacity. So and let's not talk, let's not forget about deep sea mining. That is coming very quickly. So um, we actually, uh, specific to this question on, on fossil, this issue of fossil fuels, uh, we have a question specifically to Besma from Clay Hassanaj on LinkedIn, uh, who's watching us. Uh, Will the energy transition have a heavy impact on industries that are heavily dependent on fossil fuels? And are there steps to prevent transitions overwhelming specific industries in order to protect both the environment and the economy? Um, Thanks for this question. Um, You know, and honestly, I don't think I'm necessarily the best position to to respond to this. Um, I'd be curious from the the other speakers, but also the the person who uh, sent in the question, sort of what industries um, and sort of what regions they had in mind. so if, so if I, I might maybe use my moderator prerogative and, and ask please. you a, a different question. <laughs> so you've mentioned a couple of times how the UN peacekeeping missions mm-hmm. are key consumers of energy in certain very fragile contexts, and they are partnering with local resources, local local partners to you know promote renewable energies to fuel these peacekeeping missions. Is there like one specific example of that that you think is illustrative uh, of of what these partnerships might look like and how UN peacekeeping missions are sort of embracing renewable energies to fuel their missions in, you know, fragile states, fragile environments. Yeah, sure. Um, so one example, and, and as I mentioned, it's still really early days and we're trying to collect sort of different models that are out there and different examples of models that are out there. Um, but looking at Somalia in particular, um, the UN Support Office for Somalia uh, has recently partnered with a private sector developer called Cube Energy, as well as the government of Southwest State. Um, and they're building out a solar system in the city of Baidoa. Um, 
it's roughly a two megawatt solar plus battery storage system um, with the aim to electrify power the UN and the African Union missions. Um, and the project is using what I mentioned earlier, sort of a PPA, the power purchase agreement in which the UN uh, partners with the private sector, the, this developer builds out the system, they sign an energy lease agreement, but the developer is the one financing and building out the project um, rather than the UN. So it sort of shifts when you need to commit the resources, uh, but sort of entering into that long-term power purchasing agreement allows then the developer to be able to upfront um, the capital to, to get the project built. Thanks. And I don't want to leave Clay Hassanaj on LinkedIn hanging. So uh, Karen, do you want to take that heavy industry question? Yes, that is a question that comes up a lot. Hydrogen, right? So if you have a steel plant, for example, which is very difficult to uh, run off of electricity, um, so they run off of um, hydrocarbons, but not, uh, you can use hydrogen and hydrogen could be produced by you put up on your land um, windmills. And you can use you can convert that electricity right into hydrogen on on your plant land. So that could be one way of kind of reaching the heavy heavy industry sectors that's being discussed at the moment. Uh, thank you. And we have a question for Claudia from Julius Opio in Uganda, who writes: My thinking on this transition to clean energy is that countries have varying needs, and this is very clear when comparing developed nations and least developed countries. How can developed nations help meet the energy needs of developing nations? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, it's a question of the just rule transition. Of course, you know, there are a lot of so-called climate change adaptation funds. I think that rich countries have already have already committed, let's put, put that word, dispersed maybe to some extent, uh, at a minimum committed, but to some extent also dispersed. And so a lot of these funds are actually going into developing um, clean rural energy systems. I think the challenge that we see on the ground is that you know, investors want those systems to be sustainable, self-sustainable. And of course, the governments also want to do that because they don't want to forever uh, subsidize the maintenance and so forth of those systems. So they're looking for productive users and users of energy in rural areas, also really to jumpstart you know, rural agriculture, economic growth. And so I think, again, that's why we need this dialogue. So we need um, the agriculture sector, the irrigation sector, the agro-processing sector, and the rural energy developers coming together to find those locations, to, to get those funds to flow. Uh, thank you. So um, we got, again, keep sending your questions. We have a few more minutes uh, to, to take questions uh, before I'll turn things over back to, to Jesus. Uh, we have a, a question with the preface that there's a lot of talk about this at uh, COP26 in Glasgow. Do you think countries like the USA and UK that got rich from coal and oil should pay loss and damage to poorer countries in the global south heavily impacted by the climate crisis? And maybe let me add on to this question. Are there ways to do loss and damage that are potentially more impactful in terms of reducing security threats and, and peace building. Uh, maybe to, to Besma, over to you. Sure. Um, thanks for this. Um, yes, I mean, I think that there is a responsibility um, 
held by richer nations who have uh, sort of been able to to really develop um, without sort of having the the challenges of climate change and, and mitigation, the importance of mitigation kind of in mind. So I do think that there is a responsibility for loss and damage to countries in the global South. Um, how to do this in a more sort of impactful way. Um, you know, I think channeling and supporting uh, countries in the global South and particularly those countries that are facing climate security or climate insecurity, um, facing risks stemming from climate change, those that are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change should be prioritized both in terms of uh, adapting to, to uh, the changes they're facing um, as well as helping to not necessarily mitigate. These are not countries that have um, a huge carbon footprint, but able to help transition to um, a, a uh, lower carbon future. Um, you know, with the support of renewable energy, among other things. Uh, maybe let me pose that same question uh, to Claudia as well, because I saw you uh, sort of nodding your head. How, yeah. how might loss and damage or generally, you know, aid support the transition in terms of, of supporting peace building initiatives and reducing uh, conflict pressures? Yeah, I mean, I think one way really is, to invest, you know, more wisely. I think I've been trying to say that. So, you know, putting out these rural energy projects in areas where, um, for example, water resources are already highly degraded, and then you're putting in a solar pumping project, right? So that there's no more variable costs to pay, and the chance that we further degrade resources and actually fuel conflict and create conflict and create migration. That's, you know, that's what we want to avoid. So those projects can be put in if you bring very strong institutions and governance into that mix. So basically smart investment, you know, and not just, uh, and actually talk to the communities. It, it's so surprising. People come in with the solar or they come in with whatever, and, and they actually haven't talked to the communities. And sometimes the communities, they certainly want energy, but they want it in a certain way. They want it accessible at certain hours. They want some appliances to come along with it, you know, because just putting the energy and expecting people to pay for it, uh, that is basically, uh, you know, that's, that's a waste of resources. And that's why, unfortunately, so many resources are still wasted. And that's what we need to avoid. Uh, thank you, Karen. I, I see you nodding your head uh, vigorously in response to Claudia. Oh, well, I just I agree with what both uh, both my colleagues there said. Uh, I think it's similar to the COVID crisis in that here we have a global crisis. There's the technology, the patents, just share it. Um, and if companies, private companies that have invested in developing these patents and this technology um, need to be reimbursed, then then reimburse them, but just share it. I mean, withholding the, the 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 COVID patents, the vaccine patents, I mean, it's not being withheld, it's just not being shared. The, the same thing, I mean, I was involved with the Desert Tech. I'm not sure how many of you would remember the Desert Tech initiative from about 10 years ago. And so I had a lot of involvement with these countries in North Africa. And there was a lot of resentment that well, do they get the technology? Why or don't they get the technology? Why don't they just get to build the uh, um, CSP plants? Um, and so it, it's a little bit like, well, you know, we're we're in German. There's a saying, you know, it's five before midnight, meaning the world ends at midnight. We're now five before midnight for climate change. Let's be done with, 
you know, my company developed this and therefore we have to profit from it. It's it we're beyond that. And if those companies need payouts and give them payouts, but share the patents, share that technology, help these countries set up their own renewable energy industries. Well, thank you all. Thank you to our panelists for the conversation today. Thank you to those who are watching the live stream. Again, this was recorded as a live taping of the Global Dispatches podcast. Uh, You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever. Uh, I will now turn the camera and mic back over to Jesus for some closing remarks. Uh, Over to you, Jesus. Hey, thank you, Mark, and, and congratulations to all the panelists. That was a really engaging discussion, and, and I noticed that the panelists were really getting, you know, more and more engaged and, and, and emotional and, and responsive to, to the difficult question that you all in the audience posed at the end. But I, I really enjoyed it, and I hope you also did. Let me let me just. Just share my takes. I, I, it will be very unfair to say that this is a summary of what has been discussed. It will be difficult, so rich, and so interesting. But I have a, a few comments to make uh, and on that. I mean, of course, this is not only a technical discussion. This is also a political discussion. It's a social discussion where all we need to be. Uh, and we need, of course, um, this technical input from the this interdisciplinary point of view. But uh, we all know the climate change is not only threatening livelihood, we all know that, but production ways of living is also changing the way in which uh, resources and food systems, in this case, the, 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 the approach we have as a CGR, uh, these resources and food systems are being managed. So adaptation, resilience, diversifications are all responses, but we need a little bit more than that. We need also equity, equity in the access. We'll need also some governance. We'll need also some regulations, as, they, as our uh, discussant uh, uh, said. Well, the fact that resources will become more scarce, like water, fertile lands, minerals, will undoubtedly fuel conflict and ex- will exacerbate fight over ownership, access, will deepen more likely poverty and equality. So we need to act not only rapidly to avoid going beyond the 1.5 degrees, but also doing in a way which is um, socially and economically sensitive to this to this uh, situation. So the panel are sitting here today to discuss about the way in which we produce, distribute and consume energy, and how are they going to change and how are they going to affect climate change, the fight positively, but also without having a negative impact on security and peace and stability and social conditions and fragility of the world. So uh, the, the panel, just to summarize rapidly, at the, the, the beginning, they discussed risk and opportunities. We saw the issues of winners and losers, the possibility of having exploitation uh, um, and increasing the, the, the war situation for those vulnerable people, elite culture. But we also saw that coming from the energy transition, we have opportunities for diversification, for better access, easy access uh, for people in remote area or for the poorest of the poor. So um, just to see rapidly, Karen Smith is thinking, yes, uh, having uh, from the Jacobs University, put the emphasis on the political economy 
of this energy transition. She spoke about the geopolitical balance, the important to assure that this is done, uh, um, let's say, in a fair way. And also she discussed uh, the importance of incentives and subsidies in this case to accelerate transition or to deter transition. Claudia Ringer from IFPRI, another CGR institution who is, as you know, putting the emphasis on food, water and soil systems, uh, spoke about the importance of those systems being affected by the climate change and how the energy, energy transition should be an element to provide opportunities to ensure nutrition and that hunger is, is, is combated. Besna Murad from the Energy Peace Partners spoke about fragile state and peace, especially in Africa with the support from DRC, Somalia and South Sudan. And she spoke of the importance of having local engagement, having regulations and institutions being in place, and how, and this is an interesting point, joint missions in those countries, peace missions can be an element to promote and lead transitions to energy, especially to renewable. All of them were asked to, to at the end, difficult questions, and also to give their points about what is the most important, the key priorities uh, to, for the energy transitions with Karen emphasizing the important equality, social equality, and um, elite capture. Claudia, in her case, also spoke about uh, monopolies and the importance of dialogue and investment at the end, opportunities and the need to, to still go and, and have more research on how this renewable energy may affect positively uh, um, people. With that, I will just would like to thank the, the panelists for being here for this very rich discussion, for all the attendance being there, a great moderation for Mark, and especially this focus um, climate security team who is bringing this interdisciplinary research, who is very important, not only from the point of view of what energy is needed or how nutrition is going to be improved, but also how elements like peace, stability, justice will be uh, affected and in our case can be enhanced through, uh, um, uh, through finance, through technical assistance, and also, of course, having more uh, political participation, more consultations, more transparency, and more information from all parties. So that's from me, and, and back to, to our organizers saying goodbye and have a wonderful day. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to CGIAR for partnering with the podcast on this climate security series. And we'll see you next time. Bye.